So um, previously in Exodus chapter 19, uh, the Israelites had camped near Mount Sinai. The Lord spoke to Moses on the mountain and made his covenant with Israel about obedience. If they would follow him and obey him, then he would bless them. And then in 20, he begins the Ten Commandments with that declaration of how he is the Lord God. There's no other and to worship him. And then we moved through the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, honoring the Lord above anything else, keeping the Sabbath, honoring parents. Uh, don't do wrong to your neighbors is essentially the summary of the Ten Commandments. Honor the Lord, worship him, and then don't do wrong to your neighbors. So then in chapter 21, uh, there's a more detailed um, continuation of the law as God has given them that foundational explanation of the Ten Commandments, and then here he expands into some very specifics, which from here you can uh, find and discover all that you need to in order to govern yourself or even a whole society. God has given this law. We talked about the fact that there were, you know, codified laws uh, developed before uh, the Ten Commandments and God's law here. Uh, many of them come from universal truths of not harming other people. You know, thou shalt not murder is, you know, in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Hamanatra also uh, kept similar laws in Egypt, you know, as the king, the pharaoh, uh, had codified the law for them. So this is something that, you know, certainly humanity has done, but in this case, this is truly God's word and God's law. So in places where, you know, man's law deviates out into things that are wrong or, um, you know, don't contain things that necessarily it should. God's law contains what is necessary. God's law gives us uh, this understanding. James and uh, the guys this morning summarizing the fact that, you know, the law was intended to act as a schoolmaster as far as being especially New Testament Christians, you know, trying to hold the law, keep the law, obey the law, <clears throat> it's impossible for us. And uh, what makes it possible is Jesus Christ, one in us, his Holy Spirit enabling us uh, to live that way. Two, where uh, we fall short, God's grace covers uh, what we're not capable of. You know, for those you know, that have that uh, thought that, oh, no, we're keeping the law perfectly. Some of us have been in organizations, religions that think that way. Like, no, we've got to keep the law, and they convince themselves we're keeping the law. I always just go right to the book of James at that point, you know, and examine what he's saying there about if anyone knows to do good but does not do it, to him it is sin. So simply knowing to do something good and failing to do it is a sin. The standard here is not our opinion of ourselves or one another. It's perfection. And we can't reach that. God is the only one capable. That's why God became a man, Jesus Christ, and allowed himself to be sacrificed. So here we'll concentrate on this continuation of the law and hopefully the next couple chapters. This morning, 21 verse 1. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Now, keep in mind that they've already established a court system, basically. 
So Moses has appointed the elders to rule over the nation with him, those that would rule over tens, twenties, all the way up through to thousands. And then when they can't make the judgment because of difficulty, they would then bring those issues to Moses. So, I mean, we could essentially say that whole court system is in place, which is now going to utilize this governing law in order to manage the nation of Israel. So these are the judgments which shall be set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, now look, before we move on at all, uh, you're going to see servant and slave referenced a lot, especially in the Old Testament, and you're going to even find certain elements of it in the New Testament. I need to be very clear that the Scripture does not endorse slavery in any way. Not in any way. Uh, you get to the end of this, and God even calls for capital punishment, uh, literally the death sentence, for anyone that were to kidnap another human being. Uh, you cannot take another person's life away from them in any way. Freedom or in existence. God has strong punishment for that. What, what, if you've had that mindset, like the Bible talks about servants and slaves, and, and, and you've had the mindset of like American slavery, that's not what's being reflected at all. This is more employment that's being described here. Okay, now if you're thinking like, "Oh, now my job makes sense," you know, maybe uh, more. Okay, you're going to see in this. He, he immediately describes how they are selling themselves into servitude or slavery for. In this case, six years only. They're going to be on the same job for six years. And at the end of six years, their debts are canceled and they're set free. Does this sound good to you? No? You don't have credit cards. Debt canceled, set free. Okay? So this employment is supposed to work that way. And, and here's how it's supposed to work. If you owe more, okay, than uh, what's capable of being contained within six years, then you work for those six years, then you're going to have to have somebody cover the remainder of that debt. You're set free from the first employment or the first master, and if you still have debt to pay personally, you're going to have to get employed again and have that you know, completed. If you owe the person that you're working for, then you're working off your own debt to that Person. So this is all employment that's being described. Now, the conditions of the, the employment are very different than anything we would contract for today, uh, but there are some principles to learn in the process. So let's just start again with this whole idea. In verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, you sh he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. So this negotiation that's going to take place, I mean, if you consider it, I'm just going to throw some numbers out there for us to sort of understand. If you owe $10,000 and you go to someone that's wealthy and you say, can you please pay my $10,000 and then I will be your slave, your servant, and I'll work that $10,000 off over, let's just say, you're thinking right now, you know, this first year. It's not going to be like that because that 
master is then going to have to house you and feed you and clothe you, right? So this is all calculated into that amount. So now you come to an agreement that says, okay, you work for me for the next six years, I'll pay your $10,000 debt. That means I'm also going to care for you the whole time that you're working for me. You know, if you want to figure in some bigger debt so it makes sense to your mind, like you owe $30,000 and you're going to work for six years, the idea is that when you reach that end, you're completing the debt. If you owe $100,000, right? you're talking about becoming a bond servant, living, which is going to be described here, living with that person for the rest of your life, or you're doing what I said previously. You go to the man and say, can I work for you $10,000, give it to the $100,000 debt that you've got, then when you're set free at the end, you've still got the debt to clear. You don't have it with that man. You've finished your six-year ter six term of employment. So there's all kinds of negotiating that goes on in this employment. It isn't what we see, you know, from books or our imagination or, you know, television where, you know, they're standing these slaves up and auctioning them off. You're negotiating with someone who's either you owe them the debt or they're capable of clearing your debt. So now you're going to work for them for these six-year periods of time. If he comes in by himself... He shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne his sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he will go out by himself. Now, if you are thinking, like, that's not fair. I, you know, How can they do that? Everybody knows this before they go into the situation. If, if you are a single man and you go to work for somebody and then he has another servant, a female that you want to marry, if you marry that woman, you know at the end of your term, she's staying and you're departing. So, so in the negotiation for wife and children, you already know. Generally speaking, what happens in this is people end up staying and becoming the bond servant of that house. They work in that household for the rest of their lives because of the families that end up getting created in circumstances such as this. Uh, you know, self-control was much more prevalent in their culture than it is today. Somebody would look at that situation and say, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to marry a woman that when I have to leave here, and three, four, six years, I lose that relationship in the process. So it's more just the Lord saying, look, you have to consider each element of these circumstances if you find yourself in these circumstances. Everything needs to be a done, done above reproach. So the children and the wife would stay there because of their service. If the servants plainly, or if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, and I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, literally of the house, or the door posts, of his ma and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. This is uh, the term of bond servant we've talked about many times because 
You have several different authors in the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James, who all declare themselves bond servants of Jesus Christ. And that image is very worthy of our examination. You consider uh, this one was in debt, who found a master to care for his debt, understood the love and the grace that his master was giving to him, and finds that his family is all bound to that master. So he will go to those in authority and actually make the declaration, I'm giving my life over to this person. I'm going to live and work for this person for the remainder of my life. When that's agreed upon, taken to the door of the house, they would stretch the earlobe over the doorframe. So place your head right on the doorframe, stretch your earlobe over, put the awl on the earlobe with a hammer, drive the awl right through the earlobe, attaching them to that house. That's what was intended. The, the symbology becomes literal. They're now permanently attached to the house. They've been nailed to the house. You could almost say they're like a timber or a beam. They're, they're part of the house physically. Also within that, they would place this golden earring in their ear. And that would be assigned to everyone in the community. You see an individual who just has one of their ears pierced with a large golden earring in it. That symbolized the chain of slavery that he was bound to the house that he'd been attached to. The gold ring was put in there, not as some horrific symbol, uh, you know, ring through the nose. The idea was the value, gold, that which is precious and has real weight, is placed in the ear, the hearing, the listening. This bondservant must obey the words of his master from this point forward. What a beautiful picture in regard to our faith. Paul saying he's a bond servant of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter saying he's a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I think it's most admirable and noteworthy that James says he's a bond servant of Jesus Christ, the half brother of Jesus, raised in the same household, comes to understand that's not my brother, that's my God and my king. And I'm bound to him by my ear, and I will listen to him. You read the book of James, and people say, oh, I love the book of James. It's so practical. You know what I see in the book of James? It's more raw than anything else you're going to see. He just plainly tells you the way it is. Why? I bet that James, and I'm speculating here, grew up with a smug attitude about Jesus. You know, never does anything wrong. Just... Goody two sandals, you know? How are you going to compete with that? Then he comes to the place of realizing, right? Read Mark 3 again and recognize in Mark chapter 3, they're on their way to get Jesus, to carry him away to the funny farm. Right? It literally says at the beginning of that chapter that they, thinking him beside himself, went to collect him. They think he's crazy. He's now claiming to be the Son of God. James's opinion of Jesus was not always what you read in the book of James. He came to understand at some point, that man is no man at all. 
He's my God and my king and my master. And I'm bound to him. Verse 7. If any man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. So this is one of the examples where we start to see the mind of the Lord in regard to literal slavery. Here he's saying, you know, it's different for the women in that if they become the, the servant or the slave of a household, it's like being a wife betrothed to that master. But if that man's not going to care for her as a wife, if he's abusing her, just taking advantage of her, then she has the right to be let go. But she has to be cared for in the letting go. Not like the men, because that master has dealt with her deceitfully. God does not want slavery. He doesn't want women taken advantage of. None of this is speaking of the sinfulness or promoting the sinfulness of man's heart. God is very clear about how he wants people to be treated. He's dealt deceitfully with her, and if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if she, he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. If he deceives her, and I mean, you know, part of the reason we have the younger children in Sunday school where they can learn lessons on their own level is because we have to discuss things like this right here. If someone has taken a female into their care for nothing more than to use her as a sexual plaything, then the Lord is saying right here, you are now responsible for caring for that woman for the rest of your life. And if you do not do that, she's free to just walk away from you and she doesn't owe you one red cent. By law, we're going to see later, he's actually supposed to pay the parents so that when she goes home, she has something to come home to to care for herself. The Lord does not want people to misuse one another under any circumstances. 21 verse 12. He now shifts gears into responsibilities. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. You kill another human being, the punishment is death. The Lord specifically describes uh, murder and manslaughter here, so we'll examine a little bit more of that. But I just want to really start with the premise that capital punishment, particularly execution, is uh, ordained by God, and it's for the safety of the culture. Right now, right now, there's a lot of confusion, and uh, people have all kinds of opinions about what is right. Uh, we can examine a little bit of that, but in the end, none of that really matters. Because this is God's law. God has said this is the way that it should be. You know, we want to sit around and examine 
all of the scientific studies about how effective is capital punishment. You know, does it work? Doesn't it work? Who gets affected? Who doesn't? None of that matters. Okay, we can look at that and discover whatever we want to through that process. But in the end, this is God's law. And God didn't ever give us any portion of the law out of something sinful. You know, people say, oh, well, if someone murders and then we murder them, uh, aren't we murderers? No. Plain and simple. We're the protectors when we do that. When you kill a murderer, you're protecting the rest of the culture. Now, people will erroneously say, well, you know, execution doesn't actually stop murder. Yes, it does. Cold in its tracks. 100% of the time. You know how I know? I'm not trying to be smug. I just can't believe the simplicity escapes the world around us. You kill a murderer, he's never going to murder again. You've just stopped that. You've brought it to a complete halt. It works 100% of the time. Okay. It also acts as a deterrent. You know, the countries where they perform capital uh, uh, punishment, I don't want to ever hold Iran up as a country that we could look at and admire. Okay. Uh, their court system is dramatically flawed. You don't even have to have a lot of evidence to convict somebody, right? You can frame somebody up pretty easily over there. Because the court and the trials go so rapidly and it has so much to do with what families empowered, who favors who, and before you know it, your head's on the chopping block, literally. Okay? Uh, last, last year, Iran, no, none of the military action, none of that. Okay, and, and then we've got all kinds of other weirdness they do about killing their own children if they've shamed the family. Okay, so I, I can't get into any of that. Just talking about homicide where an individual wants to kill someone else, plans to do it, and then goes and kills that person. First-degree murder, Iran, last year, 11. 11 homicides. Because they put people to death swiftly. They don't sit around and debate about, was he crazy when he did it? Were there mitigating circumstances? Had that individual made him, you know, so angry that no, if you planned before you went and did it, seconds before it, minutes before it, hours before it, days, months, years, if you planned to go kill somebody, that's first degree murder. As soon as they've established that, that's as far as they go. <laughs> did did you murder this person? Yes. Did you plan it beforehand? Yes. Execution. End of discussion. 11 murders. Do you know how many occurred in America last year? 92,640. It's a murder every two and a half minutes. The United States. You know what's most grievous about that? When questioned, many of the people who murdered did it just across the border in a state where there's no capital punishment. They don't want to do it in their home state. They put people to death there. So let's go on a road trip and cross the state lines and murder in the next state. 
That's an evidence that the capital punishment is working. It's diminishing. It's stopping not only the first person, the murderer, it's also sending a message to the entire culture. Hey, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So we've lost touch with this. However, if he did not lie in wait, and it makes this statement, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. Okay, so premeditation is considered murder. You say, well, didn't lie in wait. He's going to describe that specifically. So just to put a quick explanation, if you got in a fight with somebody and in the process they died, then you have a life sentence here. These places where they may flee become referred to as the cities of refuge. And it's essentially a life sentence. There are some conditions in it that might allow the person to go free early, but there's also the allowance for the family to come hunt you down and kill you if you don't stay inside the city of refuge. So, I mean, generally speaking, you're going to stay right where you belong. Pretty straightforward. You premeditatively kill someone, first degree murder, and you're to be put to death. You accidentally kill some someone without planning, then you're going to be incarcerated for the rest of your life. Verse 14, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now this is uh, just like a sideline note, and for some of you that have studied the history of Israel, uh, going into the temple and grabbing hold of the altar, uh, the horns of the altar, and begging for mercy uh, that you wouldn't be put to death in certain cases, God would grant you leniency, not with murder. If, if you have premeditated murder and now you run into the temple and grab a hold of the horns of the altar and say, God's mercy be upon me, God's mercy be upon me, God's mercy be upon me, they're going to say, so what? And they're going to drag you out of the temple and put you to death. You, you don't get to claim you know, sanctuary inside God's temple and avoid the punishments that are supposed to come. That's quite simply what he's saying. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. So, you know, it doesn't really matter. In that case, if you kill your own parents, then you're supposed to experience the death penalty. And then verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So this is the idea of what we know as you know, slavery here in America that took place, literally going to locations and stealing people, kidnapping them, and then either selling them or holding them for ransom, God is saying that's punishable by death. Again, the countries that do this, they have incredibly low rates of uh, murder and kidnapping and rape and incest. They follow these laws. God protects them. Verse 18, if Men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die, but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks uh, about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted, not completely, com acquitted of murder. Okay, He shall only pay for the loss of his time, 
and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And literally, if that is the rest of that person's life, God is saying that's your responsibility. You know, whatever that man's needs are, physically and medically, that's your responsibility. And it causes people to be very cautious when they know these things are hanging over their head. Verse 20, if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, notwithstanding. If he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Sort of an odd statement uh, in the circumstances. The, the idea that if you beat someone so badly that they died there, then you've murdered them. Um, the idea that you know this is primitive medical treatment, so if you beat someone as a master and they die after a day or two, then you're not going to be punished in the same way because they were your property. So in the time that they were employed and worked for you, they were under your charge. It is uh, sort of a strange explanation in the midst of it. Uh, within verse 21, you think about that. If, if you know this is the law, right? You, you leave here today, the whole world outside this room changed, and you know this is the law, this is the practice. If, if you are going to work for somebody and you know, this person could literally beat me to death and get away with it. What's one of the first things you're going to want to know about that person? Are they prone to beating people? Right? Talk to other people who have worked for him. Are they going to say, you want to watch out? This guy occasionally just roughs up his service. That's when you're like, I'm not working for this guy. I'm not going to go and sell myself into slavery to a man who's prone towards violence. So regardless of what somebody's you know, wealth and capabilities are, people are going to avoid them if they know that there are bad circumstances awaiting. 22. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows... He shall surely be punished according to the woman's, uh, as the wo woman's husband imposes on him. He shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, got to clarify a couple of things right there. The first of which is, it starts out by giving us this idea that if harm comes, then the husband and the judge, or the judges, plural, can determine judgment against the person who injured a pregnant woman. So, so right in the beginning of that explanation, you know that there's value there. When you get to the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, you shouldn't automatically think of this as a requirement. Oh, well, you know, tooth knocked out. So now we're going to stand you up and just get that same tooth line right up and wacko there. We'll knock that one. I, well, okay, here you go. You get to lose an eye. That is not what the Lord is saying here. 
The Hebrew language exposes it a little more. It's the idea of that's as far as you can go. Okay? So think of it this way, right? Somebody, you know, damages your eye and you lose your eye. And you're filled with bitterness and rage over what has happened. So you go to that man's house and you beat him to death and then burn his house to the ground. Right? Vengeful retaliation. That's, that's exactly what the Lord is saying you cannot do. Right here. He isn't saying, if somebody knocks your eye out, you've got to knock theirs out. If somebody knocks your tooth out, you've got to knock their tooth out. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying... That's as far as you can go. Why? Because our tendency is to be sinful and vengeful. To weigh, overreact in the circumstance. This is why Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, Jesus speaking said, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist the evil person, but whoever slaps you, on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So put these two things together, understand what Jesus is saying. There was the attitude within the culture that said, literally, if you slap me on the cheek, I'm supposed to slap you on the cheek, right? Eye for an eye. And I'm definitely not supposed to allow you to Here's the open hand, one cheek, right? And then here's the other cheek, backhand, right? Anybody that's been backhanded, right? Some of us had wonderful mothers growing up. Any of us that have been backhanded know it's, you're all sitting there shocked, like, like I didn't deserve it, okay? Uh, so anybody that's been backhanded knows that's much more severe, much more severe than getting slapped. Jesus is saying take the, the even escalated rage. Right? They're going to slap you across. This isn't Jesus saying, now when people want to take advantage of you, brutalize you, do horrible things, just let it happen. Right? You get to the book of Luke, and here's Jesus saying, now when I sent you guys out as ministers, you didn't have anything. Backpack, walking stick, you know, money, sword. Now I'm going to send you out as sheep amongst wolves. Sell your outer jacket and buy yourself a sword. We're allowed to defend ourselves. Okay? The idea is if we have an attitude that's always on the edge of it, if you smack me, I am going to smack you right back. If that's our attitude as believers, right? then, then what we're going to be doing is blinding the world, <laughs> knocking their teeth out removing their ears, right? I mean, we're just we're going to be behaving in ways that are non-Christian. The Lord is telling us if we have the attitude that's not only willing to accept the unanticipated strike to the face, right? There's the one you didn't see coming, but now do you know the backhand that's on its way also? The Lord is saying, it's okay to let that go too. If, if we develop... The attitude that says, the world is going to abuse me, and that's okay. I'm going to continue to love them and minister to them with 
the attitude of, I am, however, going to defend myself. Then you have a balanced approach to the faith. You know, this statement here, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, it has to do with the limitations for the believer. That's as far as you can go, is, is tooth for tooth, eye for eye. You can't, as a believer, you can't go any farther than that, right? <laughs> Think about the sons of Abraham, that their sister was raped, and what did they do, right? They go in and slaughter the whole community as a result. They butcher everyone. God is incredibly grieved with that sort of reaction from those that claim to be believers. Look at verse 26, continuing in Exodus 21. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. Whatever time you had left, right? You got Maybe you just started working for the guy, or maybe you've been there for five and a half years and you've got six months left in your time before the year of Jubilee. Uh, if you've lost an eye, then you're allowed to go free. A form of payment that you, you know, would be in some degree, uh, you know, receiving reconciliation for what you've lost. So this eye of the male or female servant, in verse 27, if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. So that, again, while you have that idea of, he has authority over you, so you want to be cautious about who you work for because if he beats you, there's not really a lot of retaliation that you can get. But at the same time, if if he causes you permanent damage, then he has to set you free in the process. So protection for everybody that uh, the Lord is making provision for. 21-28, some laws regarding animal control. If any ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned and it shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. So, you know, if you've got an animal that, uh, you know, kills a, a human being, then you've got to destroy the animal and, and not even use it as food, but uh, you're not going to be guilty of a crime uh, in that case. But if the ox tended to thrust with its horn in times past, and it has been made known to the owner. Both things have to happen, right? They can't just say later, oh, well, we've seen this ox do this in a handful of occasions. And, you know, now the owner's like, when did that ever happen? And, you know, the discussion goes on, well, the servants knew it, but the owner didn't know it. Or, you know, these people that saw the animal knew it, but the owner didn't know it. Then the owner can't be held responsible in the circumstance. So if he tended to, and it was known to his owner, and he had not been kept confined so that it has killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If, if you knew that this thing had the potential to kill people, and you just left it in place, uh, then you're talking about capital punishment. Listen, you guys. These laws and these premises, all of our laws in this nation originally were built from these. So you, you, they moved into other things, right? If you had a piece of machinery and it was dangerous and prone to damaging or killing other people and you knew that and left it in place, anything that happens after that, you're liable for.
you, you can take these principles and apply them to life. What the Lord is setting forward for us is not just for this ancient world. It works today. This, this responsibility of ownership that the Lord is putting us you know, through right here. If there is imposed on him uh, a sum of money, then he shall pay to redeem his life, whatever is imposed. So if by grace, uh, you know, this uh, was, uh, you know, occurred and someone died, but then there was this sum of money, then he can redeem himself by paying the sum. Whether it has gored a son or gored a daughter, according to this judgment, it shall be done to him. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned to death, that is. Um, so payment to re help recoup the um, wages that would have been earned by a, a male or a female servant or to be paid uh, to the master who has lost one in this uh, situation. So interesting that 30 pieces of silver is what um, Judas received to betray Jesus. You know, for all of the sums of money that might have been an accurate reflection of Jesus' value, right? All the money in the world paid to Judas in order to betray Jesus. Or, you know, unspeakable wealth paid by the entire nation of Israel or Rome. Or, I don't know. 30 pieces of silver? What a disgrace. That the king of the universe, the prince of life, was paid for with the cost of a dead servant. That's a shame. It's a real condemnation. Verse 33, if a man opens a pit, or if a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make it good. He shall give money to their owner, but the dead animal shall be his. Uh, the the things that today are the same responsibilities. If, if you're working and you're doing construction and you don't properly mark things off, you're held accountable for leaving a hole where, you know, yesterday there was no hole and now people are falling in, injured, you know, or dying. You're responsible for that. 2135, if one man's ox hurts another so that it dies... Then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money from it, and the dead ox they shall also divide. So there's, you know, I don't know how that works out. You're going to have a big barbecue and get a big check, and you'll be shopping for ox the next day. I don't know how that works in this whole process. Or if it was known that the ox tended to thrust in time past and its owner has let it are uh, not kept it confined, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall be his own. So you're going to pay the full price, even though you end up with a dead ox in the process. Not really a great exchange. Uh, 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. See, that'll, that'll keep you from stealing stuff. Right? Yeah. Okay. You 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 stole a car, right? And uh, I don't wrecked it or whatever. You're not just going to jail. When you got get out, you've got to restore to that person five. 
vehicles. Four vehicles, right? You know, five trucks or four motorcycles. However, you know, I don't. These things of purchase and belonging had to be restored. Before you, you know, steal somebody's ox, you're going to be thinking about the fact that this could literally cause me to have to repay five or four for this animal. It's going to, it's going to be in place, keeping people who have wicked desires from doing this as often as perhaps they would. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. Just you wake up in the middle of the night and there's somebody in your house and you kill them. Uh, that's not your fault. You know, they shouldn't have broken into your house or into your barn. You're not going to be guilty of bloodshed if you're protecting your own property. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should uh, he should make full restitution, and if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is uh, excuse me, if the theft so the possession is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. So if they're able to recoup the original back to the original owner, uh, then you have to restore double. The Lord wants uh, people, even if they have wicked desires, He wants restraint in place to protect the whole of the culture and the society. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. You know, easy way to feed the ox, right? Just leave the gate open, you know. Wandered out into your neighbor's field, and what you can just act like, oh, I had no. Let's get that guy back. In the... No, the Lord is saying, if if you haven't been responsible enough to keep that ox out of somebody else's field, then you've got to repay in the process. You know, I hope that the Holy Spirit is causing your mind to just jump around to different things in our culture where we've abandoned these understandings, thrown them away. You know, acted like, oh, we know better and invented our own newer systems. There's a reason our legal system is so broken, because we just keep moving further and further away from what's plainly understood. Now, it says if fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that it, the stacked grain, standing grain, or the field is consumed, he who kindled the fire shall surely make restitution, right? So look, it doesn't matter. If, if you went through a great process of, you know, dousing it with water and stirring it with a stick and making sure that thing was extinguished, if they determine later that that fire that was kindled sparked that fire which burned all of this grain, you're responsible. There's not any debating about it. You don't have to sit around and wonder about all of it. Did you build the first fire? Yeah. And it spread over here and wiped out all of this? You're responsible. It'll cause you to be very careful about what you're doing. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it's stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. You know, the idea of, sure, I'll watch that for you, wink, wink, as he sells it off. If, if it can be determined that 
something like that has gone on, then he's going to have to pay. If any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or for any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whoever the judge condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So you're saying, along with your neighbor, no, 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 that's my car. Both of you are laying claim to it. The judges are going to look through the history and discover who's the proper owner, and in the process, discover who is the thief. And the person who's claiming ownership to it that it doesn't belong to is going to have to pay double as though he had stolen it. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal of any kind, and it dies, is hurt, is driven away, no one seeing it, then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept that, and it shall, and he shall not make it good. But if, in fact, it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to the owner of it. If it is torn to pieces by a beast, then he shall bring it as evidence, and he shall not make good what was torn. You, you have to prove that you know things that were put into your care, that you've protected and preserved it as best you can. If something happens to it, you don't just get to say, oh, you know, no big deal, that's your fault. You're going to be held responsible for you know what you borrowed and its value. Verse 14, if a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it becomes injured or dies, and the owner of it not being with it, he shall surely make it good. If, it is, if its owner was with it, he shall not make it good. If it was hired, it came for its hire. So the idea of, for instance, if somebody asks you, to bring your ox over and plow their field. And then you give that person the ox and they're just using it. You're not there. And let's just say it dies. Then you owe restitution. But if the owner is there and something happens to it, then whatever the agreed hire was is what he's going to be paid. If it's in your care, I, I have this premise. I don't like to borrow anybody's nothing because I usually destroy it and then I'm responsible for it. You know, my you know lots of friends are like just use my car. I'd rather not. You know, I'm to bring you back a gas cap. You know, I don't know. It's the way things go. I just I I prefer not to. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, so someone that isn't dedicated to another individual in a marriage agreement, so if, if he entices a virgin who's not engaged or betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. Literally, if you have sex outside marriage, you're married. Quick as that. That's what the Lord is saying. You, you, you don't get to just you know, hook up, as our culture says, fool around. You know, uh, That is reserved for marriage. And if you do that, then you're automatically committing to marriage is what the Lord is saying. The only way that intimacy occurs is with marriage. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride price of virgins. Uh, forgive me for being this way, but what, basically what the Lord is saying there is, you know, passions run high. And a young man and a woman might 
you know, end up having sex together. And if they do, they should be married. You know, I'm not trying to like preach any New Testament practice for us here. Old Testament law amongst the Jews. In this, he's also saying, wait a minute, if the father recognizes that's not a good relationship, that ain't happening. Then the man who enticed the young woman has to pay the bride price, but he doesn't get to keep her. Meaning, she's going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. She's going to be paid alimony for the rest of her life. And the father's the one that gets to say whether she's going to be married to that man or not. Here's why. See, a young man might recognize a young woman who's completely out of his reach and think, if I could just get her into bed once, she's mine by law. And the Lord is saying, no, the father gets to decide, right? No, you aren't doing anything <laughs> with your life that I want my daughter involved with. So no, you get down. You do get to pay, however pay for her for the rest of her life because she's not going to be as viable a bride, especially in this culture at this time, for the rest of her life. You just robbed her of that. And so now you've got to take care of her for the rest of your life. I hope you're hearing how insightful God is in all of this. You shall not permit a sorcerer or a sorceress to live. Put them to death. Now, if you're thinking like witchcraft and you know, some kind of hocus-pocus. That could be involved. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, this might be a new understanding for you in regard to biblical principles. The term sorcery in the ancient text is where we get the word pharmacist and pharmaceutical from. The word is pharmakia. So you're talking about a drug dealer is what you're talking about. Now, they were witch doctors, right? You would go to them and perhaps say, like, I want this woman to love me, so make me a potion. And they would use drugs, they would use drugs to cause a certain effect on another person, right? You might have a person who uh, literally was dealing with depression or anxiety. Go see the witch doctor, and now they give you the happy potion. So you're achieving, follow this, in sorcery, you're achieving a spiritual outcome largely using chemicals. That's essentially what it is. Our culture's like deep into this. You know, $69 billion last year uh, spent by Americans on behavioral modification drugs, anti-anxiety, anti-depression, you know, all of the above. $69 billion, that's $31,000 a minute. America's spending $31,000 a minute on behavioral modification drugs. We're deeply involved in sorcery. We're not looking to the Lord for our answers. You know, we're not going to see the witch doctor. We're going to see the doctor. And they're providing a similar thing. Here, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Sexual intimacy with an animal, God says they're to be put to death. Uh, you can understand why. He who sacrifices to any god except the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Jesus Christ is God alone. There is no other to worship. And whether this is a cultural law or not, the person is going to be destroyed by their false worship. 21, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, for any of you that try to take biblical principles regarding immigration and apply it to the crazy circumstances that are going on in our nation right now, you need to do a very careful understanding of what God is saying about strangers who come into your land and the aliens who come into your land. I mean, I can summarize it very quickly. Anyone was welcome to come into Israel or pass through Israel. Anyone. They had an open border policy. But that open border policy also involved, if you're an unbeliever who rejects our God and doesn't want to worship our God as we do, then just keep moving. You can pass through. But you don't get to live here. You want to come here and live here? You're literally going to have to adopt our religion. You're going to have to become Jewish if you want to be here. So when the Lord is saying, and I hear all of these people now, you know, quoting these, oh, don't oppress the alien or the stranger. Right. The invitation here was, sure, welcome, come right in. Become Jewish and then stay as long as you want to. Today, you know, trying to apply that to our culture doesn't work at all. Right. Because we we made a huge mistake and just said you can worship whatever you want to. Freedom. Right. And we, and we tout that. We love that. We insist upon that. Look where it's led us. Look, look at the things we're dealing with. So, yes, benevolence, kindness, graciousness. But there's only one God to worship, especially in Israel. Twenty two, twenty two. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child, any, period. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Wow. I guess he's pretty serious about protecting orphans and widows. Not going to tolerate it. Think about how stupid our culture's gotten. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall surely not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. And then the, the obvious thing is, and I will respond. He's not just going to hear that, he's going to respond. You shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul tells the young pastor Timothy, Therefore I exhort you first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority. Now, before you look around and think about our politicians and start saying anything, here Paul is telling Timothy we should be people who pray for the leaders over us. These kings and leaders that Paul is telling Timothy to pray for were far more evil than anything we've got going on. Those Roman leaders of the day were murderous. 
and openly persecuting Christianity. And Paul is telling Timothy, you've got to pray for these guys, you know, for the kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, in, including those politicians that you may not care for. God wants them to come to repentance and salvation. He wants them to know him. Think about how beneficial that would be to us. Let's wrap this up. Uh, verse 29. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons. You shall give to me. Now pause, right, before we talk about this, because the Lord does not want their firstborn sons and daughters. He puts it out that they have to give him his firstborn, their firstborn, but he allows them to redeem them. And in fact, he demands that they redeem them. They're mine, but you, you have to redeem them back to yourself with payment. You know, the first fruits of your harvest, your, your grain and your juices, your produce, that all needs to come to me. The firstborn of your children also, but by law, they have to redeem them back. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver. Got to do this immediately and first. Um, I, I learned this principle early on as a young Christian. To just trust the Lord with everything that he gave me. And to give him from what he was giving uh, to me. And the Lord has taken care of me beyond measure. You know, many of you know me very personally, and I don't have tremendous wealth. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have wealth. I say tremendous wealth. I don't have wealth. <clears throat> Other than my king. God takes such good care of me and my family. You know, because I understood the principle of trusting him with it. And I don't begrudgingly give to him. None of us should. All right, all right, God is check. Give that to him. Listen, if, if that's where your heart is, you might as well stop that. There's no reward in it. If we give cheerfully, knowing that he's going to bless us in the process, then he does reward. 31, you shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts of the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. You know, don't, don't eat uh, what has been killed by an animal. There's all kinds of wisdom there that we couldn't have possibly understood. And, you know, from the, the microbial world is really super dangerous. You know, you've, you've probably heard, at least heard of, cat scratch fever, right? Uh, that's a predatory animal. They're small, but they attack their prey, and now they've got all of that blood and bacteria on their paws and claws. And so their mouth and their equipment, their weaponry, is you know, a bacterial haven of really dangerous things. They attack an animal, you know, something that's torn in the field. You don't want to eat after that. Uh, it, that, that carnivorous animal has deposited things there, you know, in, in the microscopic world that if you consume of it, it could kill you. The Lord, it's so interesting to me how much the Lord knows and understands, you know, 
centuries before we get lined up with it. And, and, and it's amazing to me when the world finally figures that out and they're like amazed. Like, wow, the Bible says that? Yeah, the God of science said that. The creator of all things said that. You're right. Yeah. Why are you amazed at his wisdom? You know? <laughs> he brought everything into existence. Of course he knows this stuff. Oh, if we would just listen. Listen, when, when, it, when, we, when we look at the microscope and we go, oh, hey, that lines up with what I just read right there. And, and you go, I, I can embrace that. How about when it says something about your spiritual behavior? It's not even in the scientific realm. And you read it and you go, I don't know if I agree with that. What kind of knucklehead are we at that point? Right? God is laying out his word and his law so that we can glean from his wisdom. He's completely outside. Forget, forgive me for going too long in this. I just want to give you an illustration that just popped into my mind. I had a young friend years ago um, who, uh, at 16, he was a sophomore in Harvard. For real. Uh, in the beginning of the following year, he sold, and this was in the early 80s, uh, he sold his first computer program to AT&T. Um, it, it, what it did was simply track all of their um, clients much more accurately than it ever, and I'm talking like the entire corporation's clients, those of us that had phones with AT&T, it tracked all of their clients with a much higher degree of accuracy than anything they'd had previously. So this young man, you know, finishes high school uh, when he's like 15, he's sophomore at Harvard at 16, he's stinking brilliant, right? We're outside uh, with his nephews and we've got this little bottle. Now I've seen this many times since then, but I watched this man think this up. So we've got this little bottle and we're blowing bubbles for his nephew out in the yard, right? And Luke is going crazy and we're blowing bubbles. And in the midst of this, uh, Sam, this young man's name, he's standing there looking at this and he says, I'll be back in just a minute. And he comes out with this cake sheet pan a few minutes later and he's got two straws with a string through it. So he's got this square and you've got this liquid in the pan and some of you guys know where I'm headed, right? Dip this in here, pick this up and like spread this open. Now you've got this bubble making square that's this big, right? And you can go like this number and make, so we're like putting his nephew in bubbles before we're done, right? This just pops in this young man's head. His, his genius is that far beyond everybody else that's in his environment. And right away, as a young kid, I'm like, I, I just want to hang out with this guy. He just knows stuff, you know. If I can just glean from his brilliance. It would be nice to continue to be able to do that to this day. I'm just going to stay near Sam and whatever benefits. How much more when it's God? That's a human being who's just got mildly more intelligence than the rest of us, right? What about God when it's limitless? When you're reading these commandments and these laws and you run into the ones that are, you're just like, I don't know about that one. 
understand that it's just you that doesn't understand. It's not God. <laughs> he doesn't write it like, oh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> There's a perfect wisdom behind everything that God is wanting to lend us. And our problem is we think we're smarter than God. We really do. He tells us how to behave as husbands. And we act like, well, you don't know the wife. Or wives. And we think, you don't know the husband. He does. His wisdom exceeds us all. Look at Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 to close. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's what we're engaged in here, you guys. We're not just doing the legwork to get through these commandments. We're going through to understand. This is God's wisdom imparted to the entire human race. And to whatever degree we can apply it to ourselves and ourselves to it, we're going to benefit in the process. Let God give you his wisdom. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you for your patience this morning going long like that. Father, I thank you for your love. I pray that you'd help us to be men and women who responded to that love, who followed you, lived for you, lived with you, walked with you, knew you. Work in our hearts and minds. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us. Until we're together again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.